Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You can be the most worthless Republican in America, but if you kiss the ring, he'll say you're wonderful. You can be the strongest, most dynamic a successful Republican and conservative in America. But if you don't kiss that ring, then he'll try to trash you. You know what? You deserve a nominee that's going to put you first, not himself first. Well, it didn't take them that long to kiss the ring. Hey, everybody. Welcome into an all-new episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And once again, part of a show that lasts longer than yet another presidential candidate, I'm Nick Saveri. That's right. And on the program today, we are 24 hours away from the New Hampshire primary, depending upon when you're listening to this. And it's for both Republicans and, believe it or not, for Democrats as well. Nick and I are going to get you set on what to expect up there in New Hampshire come this Tuesday. Plus, speaking of what to expect, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, you just heard him earlier in that clip, mocking the former president of the United States, Donald Trump. Well, guess what? He's not going to be president this this upcoming uh, fall. So we'll touch on that in just a bit. Plus, later on the program, former FBI special agent. He's a friend of the show. He's an author of this fantastic new book that's out there called The Queen of Cuba. It's the story of former DIA analyst Anna Montez, and her capture on September 11th in 2001. Something famous also happened that day on September 11th, 2001. Pete's going to explain his efforts and the joint efforts of him and the department to take her down. Uh, We'll get Pete's takes on some of these presidential candidates that have said some nasty things about the three-letter agencies in the deep state. More on that in our next segment with Pete. Before I say hello to my co-host, my friend, my compatriot here of 20-plus years, Nick Saveri, uh, I want to shout out 
uh, well, first off, all these episodes that are out there, go listen to all of these shows over on leonmedianetwork.com or wherever you get your podcast. We've got the Educate US podcast out there. Nick, Stacy, and Patrice each week breaking down issues and topics playing on education. Go check out the If You Lead Them podcast with Katie Barnett. Just had a great guest on recently, Kurt Tuford, who's a professor over at the University of Houston. And he's uh, apparently has the title as the number one motivational sales leader in America. I mean, I don't know how you get that title. I would like to get that title of motivational speaker. We'll see if I can get that one day. So go check out that podcast. Back Your Play is out there uh, with Rich breaking down everything happening in the NFL playoffs. Uh, we just had former Pro Bowl cornerback James Hasty from the Jets and the Chiefs on his show to help him break down some of the matchups, some of the coaching hires are Raiders for for people watching on YouTube. Nick's wearing a Raiders hat. Our Raiders just hired Antonio Pierce here. Rich and James's take as James actually played for the Raiders back in 2001 for a couple of games. And then ask the experts all the latest boxing and MMA news. Shout out to Karen Bate. He's been doing a lot with top ranked boxing. He just called a major fight in the flyweight division. So go check out all of those shows over on LeonMediaNetwork.com. Get the full bundle, the full suite. Now I say hello to my buddy, Nick Severi. Nick, you and I were texting earlier today about uh, what we're going to talk about. Uh, first segment, going to set up everything for the New Hampshire primary. We're going to find out how long this primary is really going to take. And if we truly, uh, after the 23rd, which I have predicted and other people as, as well out there have, that this is going to be it. This is the last stand here for Nikki Haley. I don't know if she'll make it to South Carolina. But I did want to say, before I say hello to you, we are going to be covering more of what is happening in Gaza. We have not forgotten about the war in Gaza and the Israeli hostages that are still in, in capture. Um, we have not forgotten about any of that. We have somebody coming up, a uh, former retired uh, colonel in the Air Force um, that's a military analyst out there on one of the networks. So we're going to be doing something on that. Russia, Ukraine, we have not forgotten about that war. There are lives being lost daily in these two conflicts. And I know these candidates have talked about it on the campaign trail and their different positions. This stuff is serious right now because we're on, we're on the brink uh, of something major happening. And it's already happening. And while I may feel like it's far away, it's actually affecting us here at home with the money that we spend and stuff like that. And we haven't forgotten about what's happening in Congress too. They just uh, pushed another 45-day resolution to pass government funding up until March 1st. So they punted until March 1st, we're going to be breaking that down coming episodes. But how are you doing, buddy? How's everything going your way? Yeah, you know, it's as you bring up, you know, these two major conflicts right now. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, for us, this show, yeah, I think for most people, you know, everything is everything is relative in the sense that we're all good. We're all thankful, um, grateful to live somewhere and be the time where you're not the target of, of an invasion or of, of a bombing. And it's amazing that while we're all connected through social media and through the internet, so we can in real time understand what's going on. At the same time, you become numb to it. And and I agree, I appreciate what you said at the jump about the fact that we'll continue to return to these two critical stories because they are very telling about where we are, you know, where we are as a people, you know, as a as a, you know, just from a global perspective. Um you know, I'm, I'm sitting with, you know, recently, I know Netanyahu had made comments that, um, I know the New York Times, you could argue whether they softened the language of what he said, but essentially, you know, the prime minister of Israel had said that he is not a proponent of a two-state solution. You know, details like that are very important because that always comes back to this idea of, well, what is the purpose of this conflict and what is the end point? Um, and the two-state solution we've heard, obviously, you know, Representative Seth 
Seth Moulton, who's been on the show, is also not a supporter of that. Um, I am. I'll be very open about it. There has to be some way for you know these two people to have what they consider their own. You know, in this case, land. Anyway, that all aside, on the the very <laughs> the, the brighter side of things, as you talked about Antonio Pierce, um, yeah, that's obviously exciting. You know, you talked about Katie's show at the network about leadership, and that's the one thing I was excited about with with Antonio is there's a culture that seems to have come back for the team, and, and I'm excited. I think in any organization you're a part of, it's hard to find culture people. You can find skill people, you can find people who can diagram great plays and stuff, but to be a leader of people is hard. Well, leader of people, you just fed perfectly into a segue here into our first segment because Ron DeSantis is not going to be leading any people. I mean, he's still leading the state of Florida as the governor. Uh, I want to transition into our first segment because you teed that up, Nick, perfectly right there. And I'm going to I'm going to hit a double down the line. Um, I, I did want to get let's get into this two part of this, because I want to preview a little bit of what we think is going to happen in New Hampshire. We're going to get chalk. Are we going to get an upset? Everything that's going to happen in New Hampshire is going to start probably around seven o'clock with the polling uh, closing. Some spots close at eight o'clock. I know the networks are devoting coverage starting around four o'clock to all of this as returns start to come in all throughout New Hampshire. Uh, there's a fantastic article I want to shout out uh, WBUR up there in Boston, up in the New England area that has a great uh, article about what to expect in the primaries, everything that you need to know about primary night. Like, you know, what I mentioned before, the, the president, Joe Biden, is not on the New Hampshire ballot for the Democratic side. It's just Marianne Williamson and Dean Phillips and a few other candidates that are on there, obviously on the GOP side on that uh, primary ticket will be uh, Ambassador, former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley. Ron DeSantis just dropped, like I mentioned, uh, as we were recording earlier today, he had dropped his campaign. As a matter of fact, let's play a little bit from the governor of what he said as to why he's dropping. Take a listen. We've prayed and deliberated on the way forward. If there was anything I could do to produce a favorable outcome, more campaign stops, more interviews, I would do it. But I can't ask our supporters to volunteer their time and donate their resources if we don't have a clear path to victory. Accordingly, I am today suspending my campaign. I'm proud to have delivered on 100% of my promises, and I will not stop now. So you heard it there. We're going to pick, we're going to kind of pick it apart a little bit because uh, before we get into what to expect Tuesday night from the primaries, um, what we're expecting, there's some polling out there that's pretty alarming right now. If you're in the Haley camp, um, it's pretty alarming what she's already down double digits to the former president of the United States. And I've been on the record and I think Nick as well about she doesn't perform here in a state that's got a lot of moderates and independents and uh, voters that can kind of sway this, you know, in her direction that she could appeal more to. It's not a good sign as we get into February and South Carolina's towards the later half of the month. Nevada comes first before South Carolina on the Republican side. So everybody kind of glosses over Nevada because it's probably a, a Trump a victory there. Um, DeSantis, let's get into DeSantis first, Nick, because Ron DeSantis spent a lot of money in the state of Iowa. Ron DeSantis for 12 months had positioned everything around the Iowa caucus trying to appeal to that voter uh, out there in Iowa and freezing cold temperatures in Iowa, record low 
minus minus 27 degrees on that Monday, January 15th. He only got 23,000 or so votes. He finished 29 and a half to 30 points behind the former president of the United States. And this is after securing major endorsements from the former governor, excuse me, the current governor, Kim Reynolds, and the biggest evangelical leader in the state, Bob Vanderplatt. Um, two big endorsements, $150 million payroll, canvassers, door knockers, email blast, the full grassley, which means he visited all 99 counties and did either town halls or met people at diners or wherever it is. He did all of that. He did all of that, Nick. And it got him a very distant second place, a weird concession speech of punching his ticket. And now, less than a week later, he has dropped from this race. What do you make of it all? I just kind of summarized it there about this meteoric rise and fail. But I'm, I'm really, I'm at a loss because for people on the outside that maybe don't follow DeSantis, they just follow some of the things they've seen in the headlines about what's happening in the state of Florida. Some of it's overblown. I can just say that as a resident here of some of the things that have been implemented policy-wise. Some of it's not. Some of it we've talked about from the education perspective and things like that. But this whole time, I have been saying that DeSantis is not likable. And likability and electability sometimes have a, have a convergent point, right? And unfortunately for Ron DeSantis, well, unfortunately, if you're a supporter of his, unfortunately, it was never going to happen. But people wanted it to happen because they thought he won Florida by so much, he could go out there and be the face of the party in the future. The problem is, is that he beat a guy who used to be governor here, who was not that liked in Charlie Crist. And his popularity was only because of that in a state where there's only four real big blue dots in this state, Orlando, Palm Beach, Broward's, and Miami-Dade County. The rest is all red. So it's very easy to win the victory if you just slim the margins in the blue dots, which he was able to do. So I say all that to say, this is not a surprise to me. I've been saying it for months. He's not likable. Likable, then translating it to electability. To the national audience, he was not likable. I forgot to mention, to the national Republican audience, he was not likable. And we found that out as he visited more and more counties and support dwindled as much as they kept investing more money into it. And I made the analogy of like the New York Yankees and overspending on their payroll. And I'm a Yankee fan. And you don't get the results that you don't get because there's somebody bigger uh, waiting in the wings to just pound you down and beat you down. So what'd you make of DeSantis dropping first before we get to the showdown between Haley and Trump on Tuesday night? Yeah, I think there's a couple, there's a lot of places to go with where DeSantis failed. You know, one of the first things that comes to mind is that, you know, DeSantis decided to double down on the buzzwords. You know, there's times when Trump will just speak, you know, wildly. And, you know, I mean, there's some common themes come up, you know, 2020, 2020 was a stolen election, you know, put my political enemies in jail. And they all are absurd. But where DeSantis really stood out is this is a, this is a clown who decided to put his, you know, draw his line in the sand on DEI, you know, diversity, um, equity, inclusion, um, woke, you know, all these stupid buzzwords that may have won him, you know, the nods and appreciation of people in Florida, but it didn't play nationally because people know these things are not a national problem. 
despite what primetime Fox News likes to talk about. And we said you and I talked about at the from from jump that I didn't see DeSantis as being a national figure. Now, I'm still stumped that Trump is. I mean, Trump is just a, a wildly reckless talking New Yorker that seems to manage to even win over, you know, poor people in the Appalachian area. But it is what it is. But, but Nick, yeah, God. he's funny. Like you and I That's have true. said this before. That's Look, true. That's let's, fair. Let's be honest. He's funny. Like there's a re when you come from the TV world and then you and I have talked about this before 2015, the primary cycle, you know, Rand Paul, you're having trouble hearing tonight, little Marco lion Ted. And he's beating up on these gas bags that you and I, you, you know, you and I are smirking right now at the nicknames that he gave these folks. And we're laughing because somehow, some way, He's, you know, entranced people that are voting for him. So you but Ron DeSantis doesn't entrance anybody. That's the key no, difference. Putting fingers was his nickname. Like that, I mean, that destroyed him. You know, it's you know, where I was thinking about DeSantis. Because one thing I think he struggled with is whereas I think Haley has made herself a very distinct candidate from Trump, whether she wins or not, to be a supporter of Nikki Haley is to be someone who and I don't I guess you consider more of a moderate Republican. Yeah, I would say more of not exactly a full moderate, but whatever. But there's something she that stands out about her. Her stances are different than Trump's. It's hard to see where DeSantis and Trump are very different. So in the end, DeSantis is really like crystal Pepsi. And I'm going to date myself a little bit. So in the 90s, you know, Pepsi decided to try something new and they decided to basically take their formula and they created a, a clear version of their soda which tastes mostly like Pepsi. And the idea being like, well, this is different. And in the end, it didn't even taste as good as Pepsi that flopped. That's Ron DeSantis. It never was going to carry past Florida. I wonder, you know, for all the people that gave him so much money, and, I, and listen, if you were dumb enough to give him money, you should have just given it to the folks that can't we please talk, because we could have told you you're better off just putting it anywhere else. That's right. Does anyone get their money back? Like, if you give money to a candidate, and they can't even get past even up to New Hampshire. There should have been some kind of return on investment, right? Like there should be some. Just putting this out there, folks, if you are ever thinking about hiring me as a political consultant or whatever. If someone gives you money, there should be some a, some kind of deal that says, listen, if you bow out before New Hampshire, I'm getting some of it back. I know it's just stunning to me that people just handed this fool money. Um, you know, I, I said before about now you mentioned the money from DeSantis and how much money came pouring in and did it make a even the endorsements did it make a difference and I'm reminded of Jamie Harris you know, who ran against Lindsey Graham uh in 2020 I like many other Democrats gave money to Jamie Harrison thinking he had a shot and he didn't the lesson I learned there was that no matter how much money and energy you put into a race at the end of the day, it's about the voters and all the money in the world isn't going to shake people's attention from the moment that DeSantis went into the race. We all marvel at that. Like, how much money is this guy getting? And in the end, people realize, I mean, most people gave him money because they were just didn't want to support Trump. You all wasted it. This was inevitable. Third and final analogy for any of you are Marvel, you know, Marvel studio folks. You all remember an in Infinity War, you know. Hulk gets a couple of those shots in on Thanos. And we're all thinking, oh, here it comes. Like, you know, maybe the Hulk's going to do something. And then his boy is like, let him have his fun. And then Thanos proceeds to whoop the daylight out of the Hulk because it was inevitable. Trump is inevitable. Am I comparing Trump to Thanos? Yes. Yes, I am. I don't 
know what chance Haley has on Tuesday. I think she's going to still come in second. And we're going to get into that, obviously, in a minute. But like this has felt inevitable for a while. And my last hope was on Haley possibly being the can. And we'll see. I mean, you're more dialed in a lot more than I am. But DeSantis, at least in 2023, early on when he was running, we all felt like this could be a chance, you know. Um, and it just, I think we knew from, we know, we all knew, not I think, we all knew. And despite every amount of money kept pouring in, all the energy, all of it, nothing. He got out before the first primary. Remember, folks, I was a caucus. The first actual national primary takes place on Tuesday. He couldn't even get to that. That's right. Couldn't even get to that. You said it, took the words out of my mouth. There's a, there was a tweet from uh, Doug Landry, I believe, who's a political consultant. He said, Ron DeSantis spent $150 million, $20 million from the RDS fund, and $130 million from his Never Back Down Super PAC, and he got 23,420 votes. That is an average of $6,400 per vote, a record of failure by a factor of 10. And he compared it to Michael Bloomberg, who only spent like $450 per vote, if you remember Bloomberg on the Democratic side of the aisle. And then lastly, he said, the biggest dumpster fire in the history of presidential politics. You know, first and foremost, after 2022 and DeSantis winning the governorship again in Florida, I got a lot of text messages from Republican voters in different states saying it's time to rally behind Ron DeSantis, DeSantis 24. And let me tell you something. Those T-shirts are like New England Patriots Super Bowl champion T-shirts right now. They are being sent out to some other countries for folks to wear. We leave it there on the DeSantis stuff. I'm not going to get canceled by saying something else. All right. Now, Nick, let's shift our attention to New Hampshire, where right now we're expecting potentially uh, the former president to win in New Hampshire. The latest NBC News poll has him polling at around 50 to 51 percent with Nikki Haley around 39 percent. Obviously, DeSantis was already he had already dropped, but he was polling between four to five percent in those polls. This is the first primary, like Nick just mentioned, being held in the state. The polls close at 8 p.m. The Associated Press is going to provide coverage for both because the Republican primary ballot is going to list 24 candidates. Obviously, a bunch of them have dropped. And by the way, one of those candidates has been on this show. Nick Ryan Binkley is sitting there now, third candidate, third choice there, still in the race, still having you know some rallies, still going out there and meeting voters. So you still have Trump, Nikki Haley, and Ryan Binkley. I don't want to forget about Ryan Binkley because you and I have been tweeting to him and talking with their campaign because they have been upset that national media has not really given them any attention. So I do want to shout him out. Now, for people that don't know anything about New Hampshire, uh, registered party members can vote in their party's primaries. You had until, I believe it was until October, where you could change, mid-October, where you could change party affiliation. Voters who want to vote, maybe they're not registered for any party, you want to go same day. If you live in New Hampshire, you're listening to this, you can still go to the polls on Tuesday, register to vote, register which party you want, and then you can you know, obviously vote the way you want. And 17-year-olds out there, we've, we're going to talk a lot about this uh, as we get into the later months uh, of the RNC and the DNC and the national and everything, the younger vote, the younger demo right now, the 18 to 22-year-olds out there are going to be a huge factor. But for the folks who are 17 who are going to be 18 by the November general election, you can actually vote in this primary right now if your birthday is before 
November 7th. So of 2024. So you can go out there and vote. Uh, 22 Republican National Convention delegates are at stake for the side of the Republican uh, aisle here. Obviously, the, the Democrats obviously chose South Carolina as their first primary start. So no delegates will be awarded down there on the Democratic side. Um, according to the DNC and the process that they started, you know, saying South Carolina would be the first primary. Um, for people that are thinking about these primaries over the last, you know, eight years, specifically in New Hampshire, with respect to the former president, Donald Trump, he won the New Hampshire primary in 2016 with 35% of the vote. And he doubled the showing of his nearest competitor, which was then Ohio Governor John Kasich, which is funny because I made an analogy here about John Kasich, excuse me, I made it on, on TV, on CNN, about Kasich was one of those guys who, making sense, moderate, could appeal nationally, but Trump was the comedian, you know, making people laugh, the nicknames, likability, going through the roof. And, you know, Trump lost Iowa, you know, won New Hampshire, and then you get to your home state which for Kasich was Ohio, which he won. And he didn't, you know, at that point you're saying, okay, maybe I have a little bit of momentum. Let me see where, where it goes directionally for Nikki Haley. We're going to find out if she loses pretty badly in New Hampshire, which you just said before primary, uh, excuse me, um, more moderates in the state. If she can't win that, will she make it to February 23rd, which is, I believe when the South Carolina primary is, what are you expecting to happen on on uh, primary night here for interest of full disclosure, if anybody's awake, uh, wherever you're listening to us globally, I will be on CNN for New Hampshire primary coverage uh, between 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. Eastern time. Most of the time returns uh, or at least the elections have been called for the primaries uh, over the last couple of cycles around 1215, 1230 midnight. So there's a chance I could be coming on and, you know, it had just been announced of who won. But if we get a repeat of what just happened with Iowa, that got called for Donald Trump at 829 p.m. And the doors had just closed at eight o'clock. So uh, at seven central, by the way. So I don't know. I hope we don't get a repeat of that. But what are you expecting to happen here uh, for a primary night in New Hampshire? And by the way, what do you make of the Democratic side here where? Dean Phillips, Marianne Williamson, uh, there's a campaign effort to get Joe Biden written in from folks. But the Democratic side, we're not even really paying attention to it because the Republican side is is carrying more of the weight here for this primary. Yeah, I mean, for the Democrats, I think it's a foregone conclusion. I think that I think some small, very small waves were made when Robert F. Kennedy Jr. threw his hat in the ring, even Cornell West, by the way. As I say that name, that's the last, it's the most recent time many of you have heard that name as a candidate. West announced he was running. We haven't heard anything since then. So, you know, I made the Thanos analogy earlier. That's very much what the Democrats are dealing with with Biden. And I think any, you know, displeasure they've had, you know, with a soon to be eventually 80 year old, you know, person running for president or being president, you know, that's all set to the side. I think the Democrats have come to the realization that, you know, any opportunity you had to try to get another candidate is lost and, and Joe Biden wants to run. So that's that's what's going to happen. As far as New Hampshire on Tuesday, two things. One, I am going to try to get myself like a cup of coffee or espresso and just stay up at least for the, the first block at 1 a.m. If you just text me, just let me know you're definitely, you know, that's still on on. 
I'll make an effort to be on, you know, on TV and, you know, throw some ratings your way. Appreciate that. Um, but the, yeah, I mean, I still think it's going to be, yeah, I think Trump, I think Trump wins. You know, it's a question of, you know, for Haley, you know, you know obviously I think she comes in second. As an aside, if somehow, I don't see this happening, but if somehow she doesn't pull that farther ahead of Binkley, I think there's something to tell you there. This is one of those things where, similar to Iowa, it was a question of who's playing for second, right? But if the second is not distinctly ahead of everybody else, I think the candidate, I think her campaign is sunk. Um, I'm curious. I'm curious about, you know, does this stay within? It sounds so silly, but it's important to me for this reason. Does she stay within ten points? I'm just curious because are we talking about anything resembling a race? She gets smoked. Yeah, I think by Friday, I think she's got to make a decision because I think at this point the money dries up. I think anyone that pulled their money out of the, you know supporting DeSantis, are they going to send it toward Haley? The showing on Tuesday is vital. I imagine that's what her campaign is thinking. So, but my prediction of our betting on this, yeah, I mean I think Trump pulls away. I have a feeling. Mark my words, folks. I have a feeling. Haley comes within. I'm going to say. 15 points of where the president lands, which isn't great, but at least there is something there. It's closer. Um, yeah. 15 is my, is my conservative bet. And I tend to be a conservative on this one. Um, and I, I mean, as far as Binkley goes, I don't know what I think it's a right time for him though. I don't know where his ambitions are at this point. Obviously he wants to stay in the race, but this gets really interesting if he can hang on and have a decent enough showing in New Hampshire. Well, one of the big takeaways that I uh, gathered from Iowa was the combined amount of votes for DeSantis and Haley, where it was around 45,000 or so people that voted for them. And I think for Trump, it was about 57,000. Right. So if you take that just in isolation of, you know, a minus 27 degree day, you have 750,000 registered Republicans in the state of Iowa less than 20% of them came out to caucus, but 45,000 votes said they would like somebody other than Donald Trump. Now we go to a state that's a little bit more friendly to a Nikki Haley type of campaign. I want to give you folks some numbers too, because uh, at the beginning of the year, there was a tabulation of about, there's 873,000 registered voters right now in the state of New Hampshire. Registered Republicans make up 31% of the voters compared with 30% for Democrats. Independents or unaffiliated voters compromise, excuse me, comprise of, compromise would be the wrong word, uh, comprise of 39% of all voters. I'm sure Donald Trump would use the the, the compromise word in a different way. But if you take the independents and unaffiliated voters, because unaffiliated voters, like I said, same day, you can go there, you can register for that party, and then you can vote in the Republican primary. Um, they're, they're going to, they could have an impact here, uh, in terms of where Haley does finish. I, I mean, I, I can't even get into your scenario about Ryan Binkley, because if, if Ryan Binkley is really close to Nikki Haley, she might as well close up shop. And for people that are wondering out there, why are they closing up shop so fast? Like why didn't DeSantis at least see it through? They had shifted, uh, resources to South Carolina. They had set up events for South Carolina. They were skipping New Hampshire entirely. It's very tough to ask a multimillionaire to write you more checks to get more people to canvas and knock on doors and do this type of stuff. Nick, you mentioned last episode, you did some of this stuff for James 
McGreevy and, and his reelection campaign as governor in, in the state of New Jersey, it's very tough to do that. And we're going to do a rapid reaction episode uh, next after uh, the New Hampshire primary with actually somebody who's a former comms director for Governor Christie and knows the state of New Hampshire very well. So we'll get a lot more intel about this. But this is the last salvo. Each of them, DeSantis and Haley specifically, had targeted these two states. Christie as well, which is why you saw Christie drop when the numbers weren't really polling in his direction, because he they felt maybe the Christie vote would go to Nikki Haley. We don't know if we've seen that from polling that it has. We're going to find out on Tuesday night if it actually has. And if it has, and if she could win the state, if you can just get off the snide and get a hit, like you said about the Hulk, getting the hits in on Thanos, if you can get a couple of hits, you make this last till mid-February. So we're going to find out all of that. Stay tuned for our rapid reaction episode that's going to be coming out on Wednesday after all of this is said and done, check me out on television. Speaking of television, when we come back after the break, this guy is going to be interviewed for a piece that's coming out soon on television. You're going to find out more about his story and the story of the Queen of Cuba. But if you want to hear from the man himself who helped take down this former DIA analyst who was giving information to the Cuban government, Pete Lab joins us when we come back after the break. 
they've got you covered. But more importantly, just a huge variety and a way to learn more about coffee itself. And all of this is available at freshroastedcoffee.com on their site. One cup is all it takes to fall in love with fresh roasted coffee. But you get a discount for being a listener of Can We Please Talk. Enter in the promo code Can We Please Get 20 to get 20% off your first purchase. Head to freshroastedcoffee.com today. This episode is presented by the good folks over at Nerd Focus. New energy drink sponsor on the show. Nick, let me ask you a quick question. Do you lack focus and concentration, motivation? Do you need something to boost your stamina and strength? I do. You know, coffee coffee isn't enough, so I'm always looking for other options. Well, I got something for you, Nick, that's going to boost your stamina and strength. It's going to enhance your focus and concentration. We're going to ramp up your motivation. We're going to provide alertness and stimulation. We're going to even improve your mood, Nick, which a lot of people on this on the comments are going to be happy with. I got the original Think Drink infused with powerful nootropics, performance-boosting nutrients. Click the link in our show notes right now to get a special offer on Nerd Focus Beverages for being a Can We Please Talk listener. Nerd Focus, there's a nerd in everyone. All right, kind enough to join us like chestnuts roasting on an open fire over his right shoulder is our buddy FBI Special Agent Pete Lapp. He's also the author of a fantastic book out there over his uh, right shoulder for people watching on YouTube, The Queen of Cuba. The story of Anna Montes, the former DIA analyst, and how Pete took her down. He's going to tell us all about it. Pete, Mike, and Nick, thank you so much for hopping on the pod, buddy. Thank you for having me on. Can we please mm-hmm. talk? Got to add the please. It's very important. That's right. As I always say, there's a Jewish women's podcast out there called Can We Talk? And they forgot to be polite, and we added the please. So in that vein, let's please talk about your book. I want to get into a bunch with you because- since uh, we started recording, I want to say like I saw you a couple months ago at a book signing event down here in Miami, and there was some news that broke around that time of another former U.S. diplomat giving yep. information to the Cuban government. We're going to get into that in just a second, how that ties into your book. But why don't you tell our audience, we had you on before the book was out, you know, a year or so ago. Now the book's out. Everything went through FBI surveillance of your book and, and what's been redacted. And you'll see sections of, of the book that's been redacted. But why don't you tell folks the story of Anna Montes, how you got her, what made you want to turn it into a book? So how we got her, because it was definitely a team effort. Ten days after 9-11, the FBI arrested a woman, which is unique and, and significant to the story, who was committing espionage against the U.S. intelligence community on behalf of the Cuban intelligence service. She had done that for 17 years, almost. She was a couple of days short of ten of, of 17 years by that point. And, and it's, it's a significant, interesting story because for a lot of different reasons, Anna went to the Defense Intelligence Agency, DIA, which is the, uh, it's the CIA of the Department of Defense in essence. To spy for the Cubans, she she had ambitions of other, you know, working for non-government agencies, Amnesty International, and then she met the Cubans, and fate drove her to wanting to help what the Cubans were trying to do in El Salvador and Nicaragua, um, in, in 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 what the time was a very controversial U.S. foreign policy. You know, think back to Iran Contra, the the scandal. You know, we were supporting the 
the Contras in El Salvador and Nicaragua who were trying to overthrow the Sandinistas. And it was not a very, um, it, it had a lot of dissension to include in academic circles and, and Anna in particular. So she spied for 17 years, provided a tremendous amount of classified information to Cuba, not for money, um, for, for uh, more anti-American beliefs versus ideological beliefs. But I think it's an interesting story in the fact that she is a woman is incredibly rare. Uh, the FBI has not arrested a lot of women over the years who have committed espionage in and of themselves. And uh, I think that's a dynamic part of the story that uh, sometimes gets under underappreciated, to be honest with you. you know, to understand, to hear it from the way Anna sort of talks about it, you know, her argument had been that, you know, the U.S. was wrong, allegedly, in, you know, the way they had went about um, their business, for lack of a better phrase. You know, how do you assess that in light of the fact that people can, you know, working for the United States government, I'm a good example of I don't work for the government, obviously, but, you know, as a citizen, you know, there's things I don't necessarily agree with. But how do you reconcile, you know, having a disagreement with the government, but then acting, you know, intentionally to to try to attack or corrupt it from within? It's a great question and a great analogy, because we can have as government holders, I've retired, so I'm free to have any opinion that I want to a degree. And and whether you vote for that individual or not, there will be things that that president does that you probably disagree with. Anna, I don't believe voted for Ronald Reagan. I don't I don't know her politics per se, but my my understanding of of her was that she didn't vote for Ronald Reagan. And and but she really had this visceral empathy for to that point, the United States getting involved in things in her mind they shouldn't be involved in. And, and there are reasonable debates, policy debates that we can have on that. You know, Nicaragua and El Salvador, Reagan, Reagan was thinking, um, you know, against communism and the spread of communism throughout Central America and worried about Cuba's influence and, and the Sandinistas and all that in terms of trying to keep the United States from another Cuban Missile Crisis, from another, you know, that Cold War mentality was real back then. Reasonable people can disagree about it, but it, it, it. When you take that further step to take action and have it be a call to action, and then you commit espionage, that's where we 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 disagree. I mean, First Amendment, sure, but then you know, deviating into criminal behavior after that is is where obviously the line was was crossed. And it's a shame because Anna, you know, is an incredibly smart person. I have said this a number of times. If she had used her intelligence for good, you know, she would not have wasted 39 years of her life. And in my mind, in my opinion, it was a waste. She could have taken that intelligence, that those skills that she she still has and used them to really help people. And that's not what she did with helping Cuba. You know, Pete, it's so so funny that you say that because in the book you talk about a lot of the similarities you guys, you and Anna, uh, Anna, excuse me, had, and how you think in a different world maybe you guys would have been friends because of some of those similarities. But I wanted to ask you because uh, you know, obviously, we follow each other across social. We're friends, obviously, and I know on LinkedIn you've been posting about different ways that I guess there's like training that goes into um, every year about the different examples of like an anima Ana Montez or like some of the other examples of folks that have committed espionage or espionage related crimes against the U S. So I wanted to kind of ask you, what does our government 
do to prevent us getting spied on to Nick's point? Like neither of us have worked for the government. I haven't had a clearance. Nick, you got a clearance. I don't think Nick's got a clearance kind of like dumb and dumber. Did you get a gun? I didn't get a gun. So <laughs> how, how do, um, how does the government prevent us getting spied on? It's hard. It's really hard. You know, you look at, um, 330 million people in this country, there's about 4 million clearance holders that include government and contractors. Uh, it, it's hard to vet 4 million people. And, and the background investigation that each and every clearance holder goes through is never meant to, it's just not deep enough to catch spies. It's That's not the goal of a background investigation. When the FBI went to talk to my neighbors and they went to talk to my universities. They were they were evaluating my trustworthiness and credibility to have a position of trust and, and access to classified information. Not necessarily was I a spy. It's just not an in-depth background investigation. It's very difficult. One of the things we do is uh, we train. We talk. We do awareness. Um, you know, Anna, it's interesting about Anna because she she doesn't understand her notoriety. So she says, I, I I think there's a little bit of bullshit there, to be honest with you. But um, she she claims that she doesn't really know why people focus on her. Prior to 2001, when she was arrested, every year she had to get trained um, from the government on insider threats. And she would hear the Aldrich Ames story. She would hear the John Walker story. She would hear these high profile espionage cases that had been prosecuted that were known in the public domain, if you will. And basically don't be a John Walker. Don't be an Aldrich Ames. Well, now it's don't be an Anamontes. And that's been part of my motivation in writing the book is to, I knew there was a hero worshiper, you know, coming after she was released. She has a tremendous amount of fans and admirers and people that uh, look at her as a celebrity and and I wanted to try and do the best I could to shed some reality in that and argue that, you know, what she did was was wrong. You know, whether she believed in our policy or not, you know, she crossed a very dangerous line and, and people's lives were absolutely affected by it. First and foremost, her brother, her sister, her, her uh, and her other brother and her mother, you know, the, the people that love her the most, you know, she affected their lives, you know, very significantly. As you were just talking about training, something that occurred to me is you know, when you spend all those years you know, in an agency and you know, you've got to be trained to constantly, essentially what feels like to be on the job on a regular basis, like this is something that your mind has to be sort of zeroed in on, zeroed in on, you know, in civilian life, now that you, you know, now that you've retired you know, what elements of that training sort of always come from within you, what benefits you and and where are there times where you wish you could just sort of be able to turn it off and sort of be able to step into a place where you're you're not necessarily trained to sort of you know think in a certain way and sort of be more you know within the scene and and, and more chilled out, I guess for a lack of a better phrase. Yeah, and I think I think when we think um, you know, people that go to work at the FBI, at DIA, at NSA, wherever they go in the intelligence community. The job is hard enough to begin with. You know, you're an investigator, you're an analyst, you're collecting, you're analyzing, you're investing, whatever it is that you do. That in and of itself is difficult because especially in counterintelligence, I mean, everything is mirrors. There's no, there's shades of gray that I, I wrote in the book. Sherman Williams hasn't even invented yet. And 
that part of the job is hard enough. And then you're kind of looking over, you know, to the degree that how much do you not trust your coworkers? You know, I I had I had a cheesy envelope from Robert Hansen. And I didn't know Robert Hansen, but I I talked to him on the phone at least once or twice, obviously before he was arrested. Did I did I suspect? I didn't have an interaction with with Hansen long enough to suspect that he may have, but it's a it's a it's a the typical interaction that someone will have with another person. And then you get to this point where you don't want to be paranoid that everyone in your circle and everyone in the FBI or whatever has potentially a spy. We can't, we can't operate if we think there's a spy behind every tree. So you've got to act from a default position of trust. And, and unfortunately, when you do that, you know, kind of back to your original question, you're going to miss things. You, you know, if we're constantly surveilling all of our employees you know, and creating this this atmosphere of mistrust, you're gonna you're gonna have a hard time recruiting and retention, you know, retaining people that are gonna come work for, you know, fill in the blank three letter agency. It's not gonna be a good environment to work in. So where's that balance? Where's that balance between scrutiny and awareness and paranoia? And that's that's something that, you know, I think the government struggles with to this day. Pete, I was reading the Washington Post article the other day. <clears throat> and by the way, when Latinos say the other day, we mean like four months ago. Uh, and I'm reading this about uh, U.S. diplomat Manuel Ro uh, Roca, that he was arrested. He turned out to be a Cuban spy. And I was like instantly thought of, obviously, the Queen of Cuba and your book. And then I'm further down scrolling in the article. Pete Lapp is quoted in the article talking about this. And I'm like, hey, <laughs> that that's utilizing subject matter expertise. So I guess there's like a two-parter in here, but like first uh, explain a little bit of the Roca case to folks and how this guy, U.S. diplomat, obviously totally different, not working for one of the three-letter agencies, but he's over here sharing information with the Cuban government. You've mentioned this in public places about how the Cuban intelligence agency is really, really strong um, and, and that one to be taken serious, right? And I don't think people understand that. Um, and then also on the other side, on the flip side of this, is really about the larger, which is multiple countries are invested in getting knowledge about the U.S. And we're seeing these things come to light. There may be other ROCAs, like you just said, 4 million people. It's tough to scrutinize uh, and give clearances to all these folks. So take us a little bit inside, not only the case uh, with ROCA, but also the larger question about people wanting to learn more about the U.S. and its operations. So Rook is a fascinating case, just the length of time that he seemed to have been employed by, by the Cuban intelligence service. I doubt he received any money. He likely was like Anna, where he believed in the cause. You know, kind of back to your point about being Hispanic. Yeah, do we focus just on Cuba's very good at recruiting and they're incredibly um accomplished in that? And if we just focused on Hispanics working in the government who may be aligned ideologically or from a mindset with, with Cuba. We would have missed Kendall Myers, who spied at the State Department for Cuba for a number of years. And he came from he's a descendant of Alexander Graham Bell. He's as blue blooded as you can get. Um, we do have we do have to think about, you know, Roca from the perspective of what what was he able to affect from a policy perspective? He was not a guy who, from my understanding, had a lot of in the totality of his career, had a lot of day-to-day -day access to classified information. There were segments of his career when he had really good access. 
Roca was probably an individual who had an ability to influence policy far greater than Anna did. And I think that's going to be, depending on whether there's a damage assessment that is publicized once this case is all said and done, whether there's a conviction via trial or a plea, that's going to be the key question I have is how much how much policy was he able to influence given his perch? Um, you know, I'm aware that he he was able to really had some significant access at the White House and therefore um, Anna couldn't couldn't really move policy in a different direction. She might be able to quash the publication of an intelligence paper here and there, certainly had access day in and day out to very sensitive classified information over the totality of her 17 year career. But Roca could be could be almost, if not more damaging, because I have a feeling you know, as an outsider looking in, that he had he had policy influence capability. And that's going to be really interesting to watch as this case unfolds. I mean, you've got the attorney general, you know, all but coming out and saying he was a Cuban spy. But basically, we don't have enough evidence to prove espionage, which is, you know, as I know, you know, from from my own experience, very difficult to prove. And it's not just knowing big difference between we knew he passed classified information. You have to know with specificity and to prove that. And that seems to be what is lacking right now with the FBI and the Department of Justice of no, no, you know, criticism of them because it happened so long ago. You're looking at a historical case, very difficult to prove, you know, at least 10, 10 years after he had access to classified information. You were talking earlier about distrust. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to ignore some of the recent candidates, particularly for the GOP, you know, one that comes to mind is Vivek Wamaswani, who's no longer, who's now suspended his campaign. You know, Pete, as, as someone who has worked for the United States government, who's worked for the FBI, when you're hearing candidates talk about deep state and trying to sow mistrust within established agencies of law enforcement, or essentially just, you know, working at the arm of the federal government, in totality, what does that do to the perception of the agencies? But then more practically speaking, for you know, colleagues of you, colleagues of yours who are currently employed by the FBI or other agencies. You know, what does it do for their morale? It's hard. It's hard. And I, you know, it's funny. I was out in Dallas, Texas. I went to the uh, Texas, the, the Dallas Cowboy and the Washington Commanders game only because my significant other wanted to see Dolly Parton, who put on a phenomenal halftime show. It coincided with the 60th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination. And I had been to Dealey Plaza before on a previous trip, but my brother said, hey, by the way, tomorrow's the 60th anniversary. And I was like, wow, we have to go. So we went to Dealey Plaza on the 60th anniversary. It, and it was almost like a, a, a MAGA rally, to be honest with you, because there was dozens of hundreds of people there and it and it was very much this deep state uh, deep state conspiracy driven theory and it all really starts with the kennedy assassination which is kind of fascinating it's disheartening because i i, I was in the fbi and i'm i'm here to tell you there is no deep state it, it just does not exist and and especially in the way that i think a lot of people believe it does it's it's kind of funny when you think about it objectively. It's a little funny that they give the FBI, the CIA, the U.S. government that much credit. I mean, it's a tremendous amount of credit that that I don't know is is properly uh, deserved because I don't know that 
it could accomplish some of these things that they've alleged it to have accomplished and keep it a secret. <laughs> Key factor, you know, you mean to tell me that X, Y, and Z have happened and nobody's talking, nobody's running to the New York Times, nobody's running to Congress. That's impressive. And I just think it's, but, but from a morale perspective, it is disheartening because you know, you know, your heart of hearts that you're just going to do a job. Of course, you have a worldview, whatever that is. And of course, as a public, as a private citizen, you know, even as an FBI agent, you go into the voting booth and you cast your vote one way or another. But then you leave, you watch the results. Maybe you, you have a, a, a couple glasses of wine. You go thumbs up or thumbs down. You go back to work the next day and you do your job. And it, it doesn't affect you in any way, shape or form. I mean, your job is to put bad guys and, and bad bad women in jail, if that's the case. And that's what I think is disheartening thinking about my former colleagues that have to do these hard cases, these hard current event cases. They're, they've got families. They're just trying to make ends meet and, and live lives and raise kids and do the job they've been hired to do as professionally as they can. And that's uh, that's that's hard. That's hard. Was hard to take back then, and it's become even a little bit harder for me now that I'm a you know private citizen and don't have to do that and put up with that to a degree. But it's knowing that there's still people trying to do that and don't have this First Amendment right that I have. I can talk publicly to a degree uh, about all that, and I'm I'm usually careful. I'm I'm very careful about what I talk about. Um, but it's just it's disheartening. Well, you know, counter to that. P, and, and by the way, just staying on that for a second, I, I, if you want to talk about bureaucracy and compartmentalization, that happens at every company, right? I didn't know what the CEO of my former company was thinking. It gets trickled down slowly but surely. But on the flip side of that, candidates that are still running, um, they've been asked a lot about the U.S. right now and the involvement in these foreign wars and who's the next superpower that we could potentially Go to war with, you know, everything. Everybody's talking about China's aggression with Taiwan, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We see what's happening in Israel. There was a poll that came out recently, Pete, and I want to tie it into kind of the book because it was a poll about like, who do you trust to like keep us safe or on foreign policy matters? And, you know, Nikki Haley kind of scored higher on that because of her, you know, ambassadorship when she was at the UN. And it got me thinking because Anna's an example of kind of why foreign policy matters, right? She's internally giving information back. We have bad actors that are here and we're trying to root those out, but it's because of a government, a foreign actor that's trying to, you know, get us and stuff like that. I would love for you to kind of expand because now this is a flip side, right? That was a question more about getting rid of the three letter agencies. We explain why they matter, but now why their work overseas matters, Pete, like, can you explain to our audience why, foreign policy matters. It always tends to be lower on the list for voters. And we're in a critical election cycle. Now you're, you're uh, an example of why it does matter and why we need to keep not only the homeland safe, but what we do abroad is really important. It is. I mean, you know, the, the purpose of intelligence, collecting foreign intelligence is to advise decision makers so that they have the best information in order to make those very hard decisions. Do we go to war here? Do we not go to war? Um, what's the extent of doing this and that and the other thing? It, it relies on foreign intelligence and the the collection of that and that analysis of that. <clears throat> and and we've seen historically where the intelligence community hasn't always got it right. You know, Pearl Harbor, 
uh, 9-11, uh, the, the Iraq war with, with WMD, all these events where, you know, good people tried to do the right thing. And the end answer was the opposite of what was originally thought. And I think we've seen those types of examples, but that's really what, what the goal of those people trying to do overseas, you know, collect vital information that helps keep our country safe. And this is where it kind of gets in that argument where, well, what's wrong with Anna doing what she did? That's what we do to other countries. I had that question at the spy museum, you know, would, would I, would I be a spy for somebody else if asked, like, would I volunteer? And I think the, the, the question was more, you know, because some of the sources that we had that helped start the investigation who were over in Cuba, working in the Cuban intelligence service, who decided to help out. Some of them were actually at the book event in, in Miami that you and I were at. Would I do that? And, and, and why wouldn't I? Because isn't that what this game is? I mean, first off, it's not a game. You know, people's lives are at stake, you know, whether they're Americans or folks that are cooperating in foreign countries, risking their lives, committing espionage against their own government that they're currently in. And then number two, I mean, that information that comes back is to the betterment of the United States. And I think at the end of the day, we've got to see ourselves as, you know, that beacon of freedom and, and you know, the, 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 the lead of democracy for the world and trying to do good things throughout the world as best we can as best we can. And I think that's that's where reasonable people may seem to disagree or even some unreasonable, unreasonable people from time to time. Pete, before we let you go, um, we always ask this to authors. I've come up with this new question now. Uh, somebody's at a bookstore. You and I were at the bookstore down here in Coral Gables um, and you tap somebody on the shoulder. I don't know if you did this, by the way. You should have. You tap them on the shoulder. They grab your book, right? You tap them on the shoulder, go, hey, I wrote that book. This is why you should buy it. Tell those people right now why they should go buy the Queen of Cuba. It's funny because I went to the spy museum this weekend as a as a tourist and I did go to the bookstore and there's one copy left. There used to be like 10, 10 or 12 and now there's one. I didn't do that. I didn't say you should do this. I I, I, I didn't want to be that guy. You know what right, I mean? Right. I think I think you should buy Queen of Cuba and read it because I think it offers I try not to. I tried to withhold my own judgment. I think that I wrote this, Kelly Kennedy and I wrote this in a way, my co-writer, this dual narrative where we wrote about Anna, then we wrote about me. And we went back and forth uh, for a little while because I wanted people to see what your typical FBI agent or F FBI employee looks like, how they, what they're going through, what it took to get them to the FBI. And, and, and I wanted them to see, we made mistakes in the investigation and I shared those mistakes because I wanted to be authentic. And I wanted people to say, look, the FBI is not perfect. It makes mistakes, but at the end of the day, there's a mugshot that shows what we were able to accomplish. And uh, that is a, a message I tried to convey to, to the general reader. And I think the last thing was how hard it is to catch these individuals. It is incredibly difficult. Uh, luck is not a strategy, but oftentimes we get more lucky than we are good. And that's not a criticism, but we get the right person that tells us the right piece of information. And then the right person hears that. And that, that often leads to breakthroughs. And that was what happened with this case. And then we went about putting together a prosecutable case that withstood, you know, and got us a 25 year plea agreement, not long enough, but, but it, it is what it is. And, 
you know, she did do 22 and a half years. She's actually out now in Puerto Rico getting awards for her espionage from a human rights organization in Puerto Rico, sitting next to literally uh, a convicted terrorist. Boy, if, I mean, that's a sell right there in and of itself for the book. It's over his right shoulder. For those of you watching on YouTube, the queen of Cuba, the story about Ana Montes and how she gave all this information to the Cuban government as she worked at DIA. Uh, I can't thank you enough, Pete, as always coming on the program, former FBI special agent, please go get his book out there. Thank you as always, Pete, continue success to you, my friend. Stay safe, buddy. I'm glad we can please talk. That's right. Love you guys. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Love you too, buddy. This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. All right, that's our show. Our thank yous again to former FBI special agent and author of the book, The Queen of Kua, Pete Lapp. Go get his book. It's out now wherever books are sold. If you want to check out the video portion of our interview with Pete, head over to our YouTube channel. Do me a favor while you're there. Hit the subscribe button. Type, can, type in Can We Please Talk Podcast, excuse me, over on YouTube. We should pop right up. If we don't, email us. Can we please talk podcast at gmail.com? I want to see who's copying that. Uh, audio podcast platforms, you know them by now. Apple, Spotify, Google. Shout out to everybody that listens to us over on Good Pods. Shout out to Acast, our hosting platform. We can't do it without them. Can't do it without each and every one of you that listens or watches this program. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Zaveri. We'll see everybody next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.